0: This is the People Make Things Podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume. The internet better knows me as Nine Squirrels. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking to one of my favorite people in the game industry, Ariella Lehrer. She is the founder of Legacy Games and has... Uh, one of the most interesting resumes in the game industry, I don't want to talk too much about her because I'd like to give her a chance to introduce herself. Ariella, could you sort of walk us through a little you know the thirty second view of where you've been, what you've done, and who you are in the industry?
1: <laughs> you want me to compress. 33 years get, in uh, 30
2: seconds. You get oh one second
0: per year. That's exactly how it plays out. Uh, okay. Let, uh, let's let's go for substantially longer than 30 seconds. You, you, you make a strong point. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I went to graduate school and studied cognitive psychology. I was always very interested in computers, although back then they were mainframes, uh, but uh, very interested in computers and education, and that's how it all got started. I actually looked at how children understood and remembered information presented in video, audio, and text format, and how that varied by grade level and reading uh, reading level. And so, it it uh, I've just always really been interested in information processing and different media. So, uh, app of graduate school i started a consulting business uh turns out that when things are brand new it's a really good time to declare yourself an expert <laughs> even <laughs> when you don't know very much so that's what i did and uh fresh out of graduate school i became a consultant and i i always knew i wanted to learn more about the business of creating interactive games and uh, so i went to work for a software distributor named softcat at the time they were really at the nexus of the the sort of nascent publishing industry like the learning company and then the retailers who at that time were like radio shack you know i mean this was way back when we actually were selling Some of these, you know, the Davidson math blasters in, uh, Ziploc bags. So it was a long time ago. I started out as a consultant. I helped SoftCat pick product that they were, that they then put through the distribution channel. And I met everybody. I met the people who made the games. I met the people who sold the games. Uh, and everybody in between. Yeah, I think uh,
0: people who haven't who haven't been in the industry so long forget that there was a time that the the industry was much much smaller, and and, and there was a time you could know everybody in the industry. But... Yes,
2: yes,
1: exactly. And so after about five years of being a consultant, I of course got the bug and wanted to start developing creating my own games, and that was really the first company I started. Uh, That game company, we went on uh, to work with uh, companies like IBM and Disney, and uh, I really got into creating simulations because... So so
0: when you say that company, uh, was this a separate company from Legacy? This is a different company?
1: Yes. Well, it was called Legacy Software. I've been sort of stuck on the Legacy name for (laughs) quite a while. (laughs) But that one was Legacy Software, and in that company, uh, we developed and published, for the most part, kid products, although anybody who's been in this industry this long remembers when the PC market cratered at retail for an, uh, kids' products. Uh, that was when the learning company essentially went out of business, yeah. so that was... Uh, you know, mid-90s, I would say. So, uh, after that, I really switched and, and I think the story of my career is the zigs and zags depending on new platforms and new market opportunities. But I switched and, and became, uh, known as someone who develops games for women. And this is, you and I had quite a bit in common for a few years where we were both doing hidden object games for companies like Big Fish.
0: You know, uh, it's funny. We you know, looking back on those days, uh if I if I look at the the data, uh, we we were largely making games for women, but I I don't know about you, but when you know, at our studio, we never actually called it that. We never really thought about being a studio that made games for women. We just thought of ourselves as a studio that made hidden object games and it and it and just so worked out that apparently women really liked those but uh, we I, I don't know i mean from your side did you think of it as i'm making games for women cuz we never actually did <laughs>
1: You know, uh, I was a little more aware of it, I think, uh, as we were doing it. And and part of that awareness came from the fact that we brought brands to the space. So, you know, when we're trying to think, is Law & Order a good brand? Or is Criminal Minds a good brand? Or Murder, She Wrote, a good brand for this type of gameplay? You know, really visual puzzles is how I always thought of it.
0: I just got to throw in, by the way. Yes. The, the Murder She Wrote game that you guys did. Stand, yeah. there, there's about four or five games that come from that era that I think were just really wonderful games, and that was that I actually played the heck out of that one. And I'm I'm not a woman, <laughs> uh, but I I really thought that one was really well done. I thought that it used the the license really well. Was, I just I just had to throw out that it was a, one oh, of my favorite games from
1: the era. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's always been one of my favorite games too. So. Anyway, I became, you know, if you're going to pick up a license like that, you have to know who likes that license, right? What's the demographic of the TV show, that kind of thing. So we sort of thought of it right at the beginning of, yeah, we're going to try to go after that market. And uh, so that was fun. And so, you know, I went from kids to women and uh, then, you know, we all tried to make the switch to mobile games, which was a little tough when the, you know, it became really clear that hidden object games, at least to me, and adventure games, those types of games are less popular on mobile, that, you know, the form factor of mobile really didn't lend itself to those kinds of visual puzzles. Uh, that yeah, was, the
0: screen was smaller, the interaction with yeah. the finger was smaller. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we remember that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it just wasn't a satisfying uh, customer experience, so we started moving towards games like Tarzan and and creativity tools like Create with Crayola that were more geared to uh, mobile device. And that was okay for a couple of years, but frankly, you know, I got really burned out in the mobile game market.
0: We all did. Uh, we all got yeah. really
1: burned. It, it was just a
0: brutal t- place to do business. It was a hard. It was hard to compete. It still. It remains very hard. To get, hard to get anyone to know that you exist. Mm-hmm. And, and a user that just, a user just doesn't care. I think for me that mm-hmm. was the, the hardest thing was going for years and years of making games for people, especially in the, the hidden object audience. Those people mm-hmm. loved those games.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they, they knew who the developers were and they looked forward to the next game. To go from that to the mobile developers or the, the mobile audience where they didn't know or care who made their products. They They just, you know, it was a... It was a hard shift, I remember mm-hmm.
1: it. Yeah, well, and not and not to mention the fact that, you know, now we all become very oriented towards monetization, so it completely changes the kind of design you do. And, you know, I feel like we're just teaching our customers to be rats in a maze and to press, you know, do the food press. And, and you know, we learn to become better and better at manipulating their behavior so that we can eke out you know, pennies. And I, I it just became a business that, I mean, we still make mobile games, but uh, the last two years at least we've been lucky and we've just focused on premium games for kids.
2: You see, so I, I, have-
0: I, I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, we, we made the decision about a year and a half ago that I just put my foot down and I said, this isn't what I want to do with my life. I don't... Mm-hmm. You know, I got X number of years to make things with my life, and I don't want to make things that I don't believe in. And I felt like I was making, you know, essentially uh, slot machines. You know, they were they were mm-hmm. just sort of hidden slot slot machines that people didn't know were slot machines.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I, and I thought, you know, if if this is what I wanted to do, I'll just go make slot machines. I'll go be honest about it. But right. I just didn't. I didn't feel morally good. About that part of the industry, I don't know if you you got there as well, but I, I actually had real moral questions with what we were doing.
1: Yeah, I I would say yes, and especially with children. Yes, uh, you know, it became painfully obvious that this is just not what I wanted to do, and I you know I don't think it's much fun to design those games either because clearly it's not about your you know for the most part, and it's not all about your creativity. It's really about well, what do the analytics say? Where do we tweak this? How do we tweak this? You know, it's – uh and it became very much, you know, like a playbook and not not very – I think it just really generated all this me too and copying and, you know, for, okay, for that me, works. It was, Let's do that.
0: It, it was all of that, but it was that the tweaking itself was designed to how can we – further abuse our user that you know yeah. it, it was like we were we were tuning a, a, a well-oiled machine to figure out how can we fool this person you know i had this i had this sort of uh, I, I you know come to god moment where i was talking to somebody and they were and and they were saying you know we've got this one user who you know paid you know we're really proud because we have this user that paid you know three thousand dollars for uh essentially a a candy cr- uh you know one of these little candy crush clones and mm-hmm. i and i thought that's wrong i mean that that's that's like like you know that's abusive business you know maybe that game is worth 15 20 dollars that's you know all right i i would pay 15 or 20 dollars for that game but the idea that anyone would ever get 2000 dollars of enjoyment out of a match 3 game just didn't i couldn't even process that and i thought there's no way that that person Looks at his bill and feels good about having spent that money. You know,
1: mm-hmm. no, I completely agree. And so it wasn't. A, and plus, I have to say and be honest, we weren't successful. You know,
0: <laughs> so that, maybe if you I were mean... making more money, you would have sold out. Is where you want to go? <laughs> well, then. that's
1: what I, I listen. I'm saying that was part of my decision. Yeah, part of my enough. decision was this isn't fun.
0: Maybe if you, know. you had the two thousand dollar users, <laughs> you would you'd still be you'd be telling me about how great that is right now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's possible, but I can't, I can't really take the high road as much as I might like to. We were not successful at that type of design. And it also requires that you bring on experts in monetization and you do all those analytics. And it was a, you know, our, our company wasn't structured right. I didn't have the right kind of talent mm. and I didn't like the business. And it was hard for me, you know, the thing that was so nice about the hidden object business, even the retail business when we were selling boxes with law and order, there was some predictability to it. That's true. You know. You know, and and you know you I mean, you ran all the same spreadsheets I did uh before and you could say, okay, well, if I kept my development costs to three hundred thousand dollars, I'm going to make at least a twenty percent margin, and maybe more.
0: You oh, know. We, we were ran a Southeast Asian studio, so our our costs were lower and our margins were higher. It was a great time for us because we, yeah. you know, because we were seeing the exact same sales you were, and uh, you know, for us there was a there was a little golden age period there where we we just. We couldn't make product fast enough to make money. It was a great time to be around, but, uh, it came to an end, but I want to, I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back to the Mm -hmm. early days of legacy. Um, one thing I'm fascinated with, and I think people who listen to the show are always interested in, is the stories of how you started and funded your original business. Because there's a lot of people that listen to this that are thinking about starting a business or they're, they're in the process of starting a business. So how, how did you put together your first companies? Did you go out and find funding? Did you do it all bootstrapped? How, how did you fund your, your – how did, how did Legacy happen?
1: Well, so my first five years, I was a consultant. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's so much about timing, right? I just hit it right. People were, oh, personal computers! Oh my God, a Commodore 64, an Apple IIe. Oh, everyone was so excited. And and you know, at that point, uh, actually, it was funny. Jerry Brown, this was the first time he was governor of California, and he just finished being governor, and he started up this ed tech foundation and I ended up going to work for him. And so I was doing this big study of schools and education and with computers. And, you know, so it was really a good uh, wedge for me to start working with companies that were trying to figure out how to sell to schools Mm -hmm. like Commodore and Apple and the learning company and Disney and so I, I had a really successful little uh, consulting business which was good because I also had three children you know like mm-hmm. under the age of six <laughs> and so you know being able to work from home and and have being control in control of my own time was really important so, uh, when I decided that I wanted to start making products, you know, I've always been of the belief that whenever possible, if my idea is good enough, I can get somebody in the, ch- in the channel, somebody who's gonna benefit from selling my product, I can get them to help, help me fund this. Mm-hmm. You know, and the biggest mistakes I've made have been where I didn't talk to you know, the person who eventually is going to be responsible for selling the product. I never talk to them and then I hand them something and they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Had you asked me, I could have told you this type of product doesn't sell. You know how, you know, that kind of, those kinds of conversations are key. So I went to the learning company and I said, this is the kind of product you need to break into the school market. It was Children's Writing and Publishing Center. They funded most of it and then because I had sort of proven that, hey, there's a business here, I was able to raise a little money from friends and family. So uh, the, the total in all these years, the total outside money I've raised is about $200,000. Wow. So
0: That's yeah. uh, so all the rest <laughs> of it built through revenue.
1: All the rest of it is bootstrapped. That's exactly right. So in the beginning, I did get some help like that, but it was from my... Publishing partner who advanced the money and then I got some other money from people who said well She seems to know what she's doing. So, you know, they threw in some money, too You know, and it's so, funny
0: I, I talked to a lot of people who who have you know companies that have some sort of longevity to them You know companies that have lasted, you know 10 years or more and, and in the game industry a 10 year old game company is old <laughs> right
1: yes, um, yes
0: and almost all of the older companies they have a similar story, you know. They built it through revenue. They built it through publishing contracts. They built it through these relationships. They didn't build it through VC money. And I've I've always wondered about that. And I, and my personal pet theory is, when it's somebody else's VC money, when somebody actually comes in and puts a bunch of investment into your company, you don't treasure that money as hard as the money you went out and earned yourself. And mm-hmm. and you don't spend it as intelligently, you know. And I'm always, I'm always surprised when I see these sort of newer companies that went out and got VC funding and the first thing they do is, you know, look at our fancy offices and look, we all have air on chairs. And in the older companies, the companies that people bootstrapped up, you don't see that. You see people mm-hmm. using their money very effectively. You know, I was talking to Jessica a couple of days ago, Jessica Tams from Casual Connect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was she was telling us about you know, when she started her company, she didn't even have a car, and she would take the boxes of materials for the conventions and carry them almost a mile to the post office by foot because she didn't have the, you know, she didn't want to spend the money for a car. And, and these, these kind of stories, um, they come out a lot in the older companies, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's a real thread for people who are, who are looking to start their own companies that maybe the, the face of entrepreneurship is a little different than what they think it is.
1: No, it's absolutely true. Now, you know, over time, I was able to get a credit line, you yes. know, from the bank, and then I was able to get an, a small SBA loan, you know, so I was able to to start using some of uh, some credit resources, which really were very helpful because the, you know, obviously the worst thing for a small business is the uh, is is making payroll and yeah. you know managing your cash, and so. That's that's really key, if you can at least have access to a little bit of credit, so you can get over the hump, you know.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, almost every single story of a studio failing is always that story of, you know, we were doing great, and if we just had four more months, we could have made it, but mm-hmm, we couldn't mm-hmm. make payroll, and everybody left, and that's the end, and... I've been mm-hmm. through, oh I don't know, four or five different studios that I worked for closing and it was always that story, you know. We were always mm-hmm. right on the cusp of if we could just get this one publishing contract or if we could have just finished this game but we ran out of money and that's the end of it, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, that was words with friends, right? Yep. Weren't they at the point of closing down and then they got bought. So Yeah, that's what keeps us awake at night, and that's the Las Vegas sort of thrill of, you know, throw the dice, and and now it's going to be my turn, and, you know, I'm going to hit it big, but over, you know, I I was like that for years until I finally figured it out. Nobody's going to come in here and rescue me. Nobody's going to (laughs) come give me money. (laughs) No, there's not going to be any, (laughs) you know, and and... When I did that, my co- I ran my company better, you yeah. know, and I just said, nope, it's there's there's no magic here, or uh, the you know pot gold pot at the end of the rainbow. i'm this is all about the work that I can do with my team and and we have to the business has to make sense. You know, a project has to make you have to be able to pencil it out and say, I have a really good chance." of breaking even or making a little money on this game, and I'm not gonna make. I just that that idea that I'm gonna hit the home run. I don't know. It's happened twice in my 30 years, and uh, I mean a really unexpected big home run, and uh, it just I haven't. I I don't
0: think I've had one. I've had I've had a couple, you know, strong strong doubles maybe,
2: (laughs) but (laughs) well.
0: You know, that's it. But, 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 you know, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I use that metaphor myself a lot and I always tell people, you know, your, your job is to give yourself as many at bats as you can. Right. And, and you, you Mm -hmm. just have to, you have to think, you have to, you have to say, I'm not going to have the home runs. I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock this out of the park. I'm just going to keep consistently funding myself and have a plan for funding myself that assumes I'm constantly just hitting singles and doubles and, and, and and striking out a lot and you just want to give yourself as many at-bats as you can and every time you have another at-bat you have another chance to move you know move the game forward and mm-hmm. you you think about it in those those small victories and and every mm-hmm. single product you have to be able to look at that particular product and say does this make sense if we're marginally successful right-hmm and and it,
1: well and this comes back to your whole issue about venture capital yep. because I think Venture capital, now all of a sudden the VC is saying, you have to make me 10 times my money.
0: In five years, three to five years at the longest, right?
1: (laughs) That's right. So they don't want to hear about singles and doubles, you know. So now all of a sudden you're taking a big risk, you know, and it's all or nothing, usually. So that's the difference, uh, right there, I think, in the way you manage your studio.
0: So I want to shift gears just a little bit, and I want to talk about um, some of what you've been doing recently. Uh, you know, you've, you've been doing. You have a, by the way, I should mention for those of you who have not seen it, Ariala has one of the best blogs in the industry, um, and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the uh, the notes. I I actually read it all the time, and there's just a lot of great thought in it about what's going on, specifically in virtual reality augmented reality um which is which is what you've been working in in lately and i i'm suspicious if it it, it harkens back to your in the early days of something it's great to be an expert i i think maybe you found your (laughs) your new niche Um, and I, i wanted you to just you know for people there are actually people who listen to this who aren't video game people and they don't know a lot about that can you kind of give me the background of where we are with virtual reality and augmented reality right now in the game industry? What are we up to? what where How far has this gone and what's interesting for you? what's your what's your three to five minute crash course in VR right now?
2: Well, uh,
1: so personally, I'm much more interested in augmented reality. and in particular, uh, if you're talking about, uh, non-entertainment applications, and sort of anybody under the age of 16, mm-hmm. uh, I think AR is where the action is. I mean, obviously, you can't talk about AR without, without talking about Pokemon. Uh, Pokemon has obviously had a dramatic drop-off on players. I think at their high point, there were 20 million downloads a day, and now it's more like a half a million. But... When I looked in December, they're still the highest grossing game. And that, it, in the uh, iTunes store. Mm-hmm. So, so they're still making piles of money. They're still updating the game. They just added like 80 new Pokemon or something, you know. So they're still really, uh, working the audience, making money. And, th- and the success of that game just was such a kick. I
0: I I knew it had really hit the big time when I came back I flew back to Japan and I came into a train station and they had, like, the official train station announcement, you know, so-and-so on track one and -and so-and-so on track two here in Japan. And then after that, they were like, and by the way, if you are trying to catch Pokemon, please be careful not to step onto the train tracks. And I was like, wow, you've really hit the big time when you're on the the official Japanese train announcements. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, that's pretty funny. Of course, you know, is it really AR in the sense that that Pokemon character has no idea that there's a park bench
2: right there. Yeah,
1: exactly. They have no idea of their surroundings. So the kind of AR that is available today to people without special hardware is that type of Pokemon-like AR, where you can superimpose a character on top of the real world, but that character doesn't know anything about the real world and just is basically attached to your phone. Yeah. So you move your phone up, the Pokemon character goes up. Uh, now, the kind of AR that I am most interested in is the next step beyond that. But that requires some additional hardware. So right now, I mean, I'm not saying anything that's original here. The AR is going to happen first through your mobile device. And then within a few years, it'll be in your glasses, something you wear on your head. So right now on your mobile device, the best AR that's out there is Google Tango. This is obviously my opinion on your mobile device. And what it does is it has two 3D cameras and infrared. And so it does motion detecting. It does depth sensing. So when you scan a room, it knows where everything is in the room, all the furniture, the floor, the ceiling, the walls. It can take measurements of all of that. But it really, the most important thing is that it knows it's there. So when you're designing games, you can have the virtual objects and characters interact with the things that are in the room. So that opens up all kinds of exciting gameplay. Uh, and what Legacy was able to do, we were part of uh, the Google App Incubator program for Tango. And so we pitch them on a couple of ideas and they said, hey, we like that <laughs> Crayola Color Blaster is what the game is called. Uh, we're launching a new chapter uh actually on the 28th. So the first chapter, you're chasing around life-size zombies in your room and you're blasting them with color, and you have to they come towards you. They're chasing you. So you have these <laughs> augmented reality zombies walking around the room coming after you. You have to, you have to color them in completely before they get too close or they'll steal your color. And then you have to go find more color paint buckets all around the room. And so it's a, a walk around game with virtual characters that you're really interacting with. And I it just,
2: I, it's it's a lot of fun. The I, I want to just sh-
0: just stop for a second and point out to <laughs> people who who, because I think there's people here who don't know how cool this is. Um, to to put this thing together, the the pieces that you had to put together as a game developer, right? For one thing, you had to go out and get the Crayola license, right? Which is, you know, yes, that's that's yes. that's that alone, right? That thing by itself is hard to do, right? That was a, that was a challenge. Two, you had to get onto a special developer program with Google, not the easiest company in the world to deal with, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Not that they're bad people, but I mean, everyone in the world wants to be doing something with Google, so being the person that Google actually is working with on their new project, and you have to get a development team to actually understand how to build an AR game and build a game, and I don't know if you did that with an external team or you did that with your internal team, but... Those three large pieces of development and finding a license and working with brand new technology with Google. I mean, this I, you know, for me, this is. And I, you know, I I don't mean to 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 say too much, but you've always been one of the people I've most admired in the industry, and this is why, right? This ability to go out with your business and find these three very disparate things and put them together into a project and handle not only the creative side of, you know, hey, there's are zombies and they stole my color and I put color into it, but to handle the business side of being able to develop those those relationships with those other companies and bring it together into a product. When people ask how to be successful in the industry, I would point at this and say, if you could ever do something like that that's and, and do that consistently, and that's the thing that's amazing about uh, Legacy and the work that you've done, is if I go back through your 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 record of being in the industry, it's just story like that after story like that of being able to put all that together. And I, I just have to I have to break in and say how impressed I am by that. Uh,
1: you are incredibly sweet and I really appreciate it. That might be the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. Well I so. appreciate
0: it because I try <laughs> to do this stuff, right? And I you know I yeah you know, I think people who are in the industry that do this stuff they appreciate it because they know how difficult it is to do and people outside of the industry you know one of the one of the things that i think is hilarious is some people actually have kind of a negative opinion of licensed games you know and they say oh they that's just a licensed product they didn't make their own ip and and you know i i I've, I've worked with licensed product and oh my god that's so hard and working with a licensor and and dealing with you know they have a view of what they want their product and their brand to be and being part of that brand there's a whole skill involved with that and and you guys have a long history of working with these different licenses murder she wrote and csi and stuff like that and the, these are big licenses getting those licenses mm-hmm. isn't easy working with those licensors is not easy and this does and, and i haven't even touched on the fact that you're doing groundbreaking augmented reality work with it which is even more incredible so
1: well the fun part about this game is it's basically a first-person shooter for kids with color yeah i mean that's it's just and that it's just a really fun game mechanic and finding that fun game mechanic when it's a completely blank slate i mean what do you do with augmented reality in a situation where you can move around like this and the the device knows where you are and what's around you i mean it's it opens up there's so many things that we can do with this oh my gosh so i think the first thing for your audience to think about is trying to be ahead of the curve not chasing Mm -hmm. you know success you know other successful products it's hard to do but when they find a technology that allows them to do something that's really unique and then you spend time on that gameplay mechanic what's fun about that and to me i mean we started out doing a coloring book in your room right you mm-hmm. could color in virtual stuff and i'm like oh this is so boring <laughs> i'm not going to do this and this is actually what we pitched to google originally and so we played around with it. it's like no it's not that's not fun And then what was fun? Oh my God, this zombie chasing me down the hall, following me into the elevator. You know, that was fun. Mm -hmm. And I had to ditch him, you know, and then try to sneak up on him and color him. That was fun. So, so, so
0: stop for just a second. How did you get because this is this is the part that fascinates me is the creative process right so mm-hmm. so you had you know hey we you know we've got this technology we can color in your living room and have a you know a coloring book of your living room and you're like yeah that's boring and suddenly mm-hmm. you're like oh now it's about chasing zombies what was the pro- how did you come up with the zombie idea what was the creative process to go from what you thought was something that was very boring to something that you thought was very exciting how did you get there how did that creative process well, take place
1: Honestly, I have some people who work for me, and this is the truth <laughs> They're the ones who come up with the good ideas and you know uh, two guys Andrew and Patrick who are phenomenally creative and uh, I just love working with them so that That's like a big big piece of it. It's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's really about a team of people talking and thinking about what's fun uh, and I, you know, honestly, this was a product for kids six plus, and I have to say that there's some fabulously creative game designers out there, but they don't really like kids' stuff. Yeah. They're not, it's not for them. And I've had some of those people, and it always breaks my heart because, you know, look, I'm not doing, I'm not doing mid core games here. And, uh, so. You have to sort of like the space and be and be knowledgeable about it. Even having young kids is helpful, you know. Well, to, for,
0: for me and I've, I've done some children's product, and the, the truth is, in in some ways, the design for children's product is harder because you can't yes. hide, right? I mean, if if, right. if you're making a say a midcore strategy game, you can kind of hide behind, oh, look at all these cool units and look at all these cool mechanics, and we have this big sort of complicated game, and and. And, and if the main core game functionality is relatively simple and, and uninteresting, it's okay because you've got all these details that you can mess around with. Yes. But but That's with kids' right. entertainment, you just have the core mechanic you, you, because they're, they don't have the, you know, you can't have thousands of little details. A six-year-old doesn't get that. So finding that yeah. really core game mechanic can be very, very difficult.
1: Yes, so I agree. I, there's nothing simple about it. And the other thing, I, I mean, it's, it's always true in games, but especially true in kids' games. I bet we ran that uh, the Crayola Color Blaster game through a hundred kids.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we set up a partnership with the local rec center, and we just play tested it to death. Mm. And that's what took all the time. So I, I don't, especially with new technology, and especially with kids, I think there's there's no There's no way around it. You have to give yourself enough time and money to do that iteration. That is going to be critical. So we have uh, zombies in it now. And then on the 28th, we launch uh, orcs, fairies, dragons, (laughs) yetis. Yeah, all kinds of characters. And we also learned you had to create, we created an arcade mode. There's a story mode and an arcade mode. And the arcade mode was required because we discovered that not everybody has a large enough space to play the game. Yeah. And so the arcade mode, you're sort of just spinning around as the characters come to you. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to be constantly running around. Um, so, you know, we're learning as we go. Uh, we have some other Tango projects in development. Uh, the other technology that I think people really should take a look at because I think it's wide open is uh, with uh, with Amazon Echo and with Google Home, you know, the voice activated yeah. assistance and thinking about, you know, interactivity and gaming and what can we do with that for specific audiences? There's a lot of opportunity there, I think. So.
0: I'm, I want to I want to shift a little bit. So we're talking a lot about children's entertainment. We're talking about this this amazing product that you put together. Now, and and excuse me if I if I kind of let your age out of the bag a little bit. Um, you you've actually watched two generations of your own children. Uh, You know, your children and your grandchildren uh, Mm -hmm. grow up And you've watched your children go through sort of, I guess, early generation digital products Now you're watching your grandchildren experience uh, far more sophisticated digital products Not as a game developer, but as a parent and as a grandmother How do you feel about the amount of digital engagement children have today And where that sits in their life And are, are you completely comfortable with it?
1: Well, so my oldest child, Eli, is 40. And, uh, yes, and he has three children, ages one to seven. So those are three of my grandchildren. And I have two other grandchildren under the age of five. So there, I have, there are a lot of little grandchildren and four children. Uh, I have four children between the ages of 27 and 40. And, so that was that's a big span. Yeah, so you you've you seen say. children's
0: products across, you know, generations almost because you know the difference between someone who's 27 and 40 the kind of digital projects products that they would have had access to when they were children would be radically different.
1: Yes. I you know one big difference is the number of screens. Mm. I mean, think about so for my children, they had television, so they had that screen, and we didn't, we weren't a, the kind of family that had a TV in every room. And then we also had a PC that the kids could use. I used it for work, but they could use it to play Civilization and Railroad mm-hmm. Tycoon and some sports simulations they liked. So the kids would use the PC when it wasn't being used by somebody else, and they had TV. Now, compare that to the the ubiquitousness of screens now
2: for oh, a child. absolutely.
1: You know, it's in every room, every location you have access to it, and you got, you know, between mo- various mobile devices and tablets and TVs. And, I mean, it's yeah. – so I – I, I,
0: I think- sat down once and tried to figure out. Now, my, I'm a little worse than most because I, I, you know, work out of my home and I make video entertainment, but – I think we counted that in my little apartment we have 24 CPUs running that that mm. produce some variety of, you know, digital something. And
1: <laughs> Well, that is definitely crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's
0: insane. I mean, but if you count every, you know, every cell phone that we have, every iPad that we have, every computer that we have, our smart TV and and all of it together, you know, it's uh it's absolutely insane. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I so I think the use of digital technology was more intentional, certainly more limited and localized and but just more thoughtful. You know, it wouldn't be that I'm standing in line. So I just pull up my phone and start looking at it. You know, it was at a time and a place. Okay, I go to the screen and now I'm going to absorb this. So that's one thing that's not good Oh I can, I can uh, tell
0: you I was it was I was in Germany last week, and I actually was I consciously decided because I was having a really I, I was eating alone and I almost never eat alone and mm-hmm. i was I was having this really nice meal, and I reached in my pocket to pull out my phone and, and read stuff on my phone like you do when you eat and i I made the conscious decision I'm not going to look at my phone while I eat this meal because it's a really nice meal and it was mm-hmm. an almost revolutionary act to sit mm-hmm. and eat an entire meal without staring at a screen and and you know that we've come this far that that's just so ingrained it's almost like like your cell phone has become part of your hand and and it's a mm-hmm. it's it's almost like a sensory apparatus that we've attached to our bodies at this point
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and soon we will, because by 2020, we're all going to be wearing these smart glasses, I hate to say. And I was <laughs> so, so excited about
0: finally <laughs> getting LASIK surgery and getting rid of my glasses. And now you're telling me we're all going to get them back again.
1: <laughs> I'm afraid so. But so anyway, that's so one of the differences is that it's the these screens are ubiquitous in our lives and they're it's not going to be changing anytime soon. And I think we have to. Be very uh, conscious and aware, just like you were in that at that moment. Of I'm not going to do that, and try to experience the world around you and enjoy the world around you a little now bit. No, wait, so. wait,
0: wait! I I gotta call BS a little bit here, because you you say that, but you just said a breath ago we're all going to be wearing AR glasses. I mean, once I put the glasses <laughs> on my face, is that it? Am I am I in the you know if, if I entered the Matrix forever? I mean, how do how do we <laughs> How, when, when it's being beamed into my eyeballs all the time, how do I ever go back to turning it off again?
1: Yeah, well, I presumably it'll be like notifications are now, and you know you'll be able to decide what you see and how often you see it. Uh, so I mean, can you imagine the kind of talk about graffiti when you wear these glasses and you walk into a new city which you go you know you travel so much and all of a sudden you're blasted with. You know, instead of the Yelp, re- looking on your phone for your Yelp reviews, you see all the Yelp reviews in front of
2: you. It's going you know. to
0: be just like that scene in Minority Report. I don't know if you remember that movie. You know, he <laughs> walks in and it's like, you know, hey, I saw you bar underwear in this store yesterday. We got a sale on underwear just like that, you know. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why we have to have the, the ability to turn it all off. But uh, I, I think with the children and today and technology, my basic position is as it has always been that parents need to limit it they have to be focused on giving a balanced you know life experience to their kids There should be balanced with outdoor time with friend time you know mobile games for kids are in particular tend to be very asocial partly that's because of the copa laws mm. you know so and and you know the best. All right, there, there, in, there's
0: people out there that don't know what a COPA law is. You're going to have to define that a little better.
1: So those are the privacy laws that apply specifically to young children. So you're not allowed to get and you know they're they they can not be on social networks because you know obviously there there are predators out there and so you don't want kids sharing information about themselves beyond essentially their device. I mean, parents have to go through a lot of hoops if they want their child to be able to share a picture or a drawing or something with grandma. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I think it's uh, that's another big issue for me with kids and these mobile devices. First of all, they sit too much. I don't like that. And second of all, it's not very social at all, and I don't think that's good for social development. But... Some of these apps are really cute and fun and good entertainment so the parent just has to monitor it like they monitor television or should be monitoring so
0: TV. how do we how do we do that when it's AR glasses when, when it's when it's literally something is private I mean because that's the big difference with the glasses right when 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 it's on a mobile device there's a certain publicness to what you're doing you're holding this thing in your hand and and i you know i i it's it sounds ridiculous to bring it up right now, but in in one of my earlier podcasts, I was talking about I was riding on a plane, and this Japanese gentleman sat down next to me on the plane and actually opened up a porn magazine and started reading porn right there on the plane next to me, right which I was really surprised by that, and it was it was kind of a funny story. but the idea that right now when you're looking at a mobile device or you're looking at something in your hand, there is that you know there maybe someone's sitting next to me they're wondering what I'm up to, but once we put it in the glasses it gets very private and it gets very the only person who sees what you see is you how do I monitor my children then how do I know when my kid is sitting on the other side of the room just staring into a pair of glasses and you know, chatting with their friends or what how do I how where how do we monitor then how do we how do we control that your,
1: your guess is as good as mine Chris i am say I have no answers I mean. My assumption is that kids will not be wearing this stuff, you know, until they get to be teenagers or something. If
0: you you had asked me back in the the 90s whether or not I thought kids were going to be carrying computers around in their hands, I would have told you the same thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I really don't know how we're going to work that out. It just gets more complicated, you know, as we go on. So, yeah, I there are a lot of challenges out there, but the fact of the matter is that these you know this kind of tango technology and even vr i mean i think i'm i'm sure you've read ready player one right oh, yeah. you know if you imagine that that's the that's the vision of what education in vr could be and so you know, there there are going to be some really great applications of it too, not just not just for pornography, which I'm sure there'll be plenty Well, it's plenty not it's not that. even
0: that. I mean, I I have you know two kids, two children. I have a 13 year old girl and a 10 year old boy, and I've I've had to you know struggle with how I you know, and and for me, there's always that level of hypocrisy to it that you know, okay, Dad's going to go in his room and make you know virtual you know video entertainment for most of his life. Oh, but you can't play that. He make, daddy makes mm-hmm. that for other people, you know. There, there's always a certain level of hypocrisy to that, and but I, you know, I see, you know, and and it's interesting. Different kids relate to it differently. My daughter is not as into it as my son is for whatever reason, and you know, I've had to take things away from my son and be like, nope, you you've gone too deep into the rabbit hole and you need to pull back mm-hmm. now, and
2: mm-hmm.
0: that I actually wonder as we make more and more and more compelling children's products which we certainly are doing how much more mm-hmm. difficult it's going to be for me to rip that out of the hands of a kid you know once I mean I we I always worry that I gave a DS you know my, my, my son it's all about the the, the Nintendo DS mm-hmm. I always worry that maybe I gave him one of those too soon you know like I like mm-hmm. I you know got him hooked on the crack and you know you, you talk about children being able to go outside and play I don't know how many times I've said, all right, today you've got to go outside and play. You can't be in the house. And I look out Mm -hmm. the back window and in the park behind my house, he and his five friends are all sitting on a bench playing DS together. Mm -hmm. And I, and you're like, I can't win. (laughs) I
1: can't. No, no, that's sort of sad. Well, (laughs) I, I don't, it's not easy. It's not easy. I, the one thing that I would say is that with my children, Chris, I didn't give them console access. They only had access to things like SimCity, yeah. Civilization, Rover. You know, at, at some point it's like, no, you can't start that game. Or no, I'm not giving you that device. You're not gonna get it. And if you wanna go play, you know, Xbox over at your friend's house, okay, fine. But I'm not buying it because that's an expression of my values. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, you know, that, that, that hasn't changed over the 40 years. Uh, and, but our entertainment certainly has become very compelling. Um, you know, so there's no argument there. I'll just tell you a funny story. My oldest son, he just loved television. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. He used to like just, watch television all the time. And I was always prying him away and like, your head's going to turn into a TV. Well, you know, he ended up being a television executive and (laughs) making TV shows and does extremely well. And, you know, I think to myself, hmm, (laughs) I guess he put that experience to good use. So you know, sometimes you can't tell us. Yeah.
0: I, I used to play so much Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. And I can remember my parents being like, you know, you really, why are you wasting all your time on these games? You know, why you really, and I have have i don't know how many times I've gone back to my parents and been like, ha ha, see, look. I, gotta, I, <laughs> I made
1: a career out yeah,
0: of this. <laughs> I made a living out of this. Um, so... And my my son, yes. actually, he talks about wanting to be a game developer, and I'm just like, "No, please, for the love of God, anything but game development. I know what that life is like. <laughs> you don't want it.
1: Yeah, maybe well, maybe you can we're... sell
0: drugs or something. whatever whatever <laughs> it is you got to do, just keep out of the games."
1: Well, you know, you're an indie game developer as as am I. So there I imagine there are easier ways to do it with, you know, getting regular paychecks and such, but Well, you
0: know, I I wasn't always, you know, I my the first half of my career was, you know, I've been making games about 23 years, and the first uh, you know, 10 10 or, 10 or 12 of them were spent working for game companies, and that's mm-hmm. that's the running joke is the most I've ever been paid in games was when I worked for myself. The most secure I've ever had a job was when I, you know, I've never worked for a company mm-hmm. as long as the company I've run. You know, I went, mm-hmm. I went through that boom and bust cycle of, you know, massive layoffs, massive hirings, moving from city to city, moving from country to country. Mm. So, so for me, actually, going into indie development and starting my own company, that's when my life finally got safe and secure, which is the, the irony of the whole thing.
1: Well, that is very interesting. You know, I've only ever worked for big companies as consultants or contractor, you know, but, uh, so I, so I definitely took the independent path as well. Uh, I think, you know, as a woman in the industry, I think that was, it just felt very natural to me. And also, as I said, I wanted, I wanted a certain amount of autonomy that I didn't feel that I was going to get, you know, by joining a big company. So, and I like being the boss. So what can
2: I say? It it would be
0: very difficult for me to ever go back and work for someone again. I really struggle with how I could ever manage that. But I want want to shift gears one last time. We're kind of running out of time. This is a longer interview than I intended, but it's so interesting. I want to keep it going for just a little longer. Um, You've had just enormous levels of success in your career, but Everyone always hears the happy stories. Everyone always hears about that. And I think when people look at other people's careers and they see all this success, they don't realize how much failure is involved in that success and how many times people had to fall down. And I'm wondering if I could, if I could talk you into sharing with me one story of when you just absolutely dropped the ball, where you were like, wow, this I shouldn't have done this. I did something wrong. And then walk me through how you walked that back and, and pulled yourself out of it. Because I think those stories are important, too.
1: Uh, well, the two times that I really almost went bankrupt was, uh, the most recent one was 2009 Mm -hmm. with the Great Recession. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just was caught completely flat-footed, completely. And, you know, you know, most of us have three months of payroll and that's about it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had no visibility and so everything dried up and of course the bank with whom I had a $300,000 credit line said, oh, okay, we're calling the credit line, Oh. Um, you know, at the world's worst moment and uh, so what my husband and I did was we took our savings and it was almost a million dollars I had to put into Legacy in 2009 to keep us afloat. We had a lot of, you know, uh, obligations and I just, uh, we did it. So, and, so you uh, actually
0: that, dipped into your own personal bank account and made payroll with it. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. That's I hardcore. Sure I've <laughs> not
0: done that yet. Um, <laughs> I've not, no, I've not gotten paid for a while, but I have, I have yet to dip into my actual savings account and do payroll with it. That's hardcore.
2: Yeah,
1: well I have a very understanding husband, as you might imagine. (laughs) We we put a mortgage on our house. I mean, it was a terrible mess. And it was probably a stupid thing to do, except that it were you know, there's a happy ending and it worked out fine. Uh what saved us and I had no way of knowing that this was really gonna happen, was you know, that stimulus we'll get a little political here, that stimulus program that Uh, people hated so much. What a waste of money. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we were very fortunate. Uh, We had applied for uh, the Department of Homeland Security was uh, wanted to create a game to teach kids what to do in case of a natural disaster, like, you know, hurricane or earthquake. And uh, we applied with uh, with another company, a nonprofit. And we got that contract. And that's what kept us afloat. So we were the stimulus... Uh, after the recession was what saved the company. And, uh. But you you so know, we,
0: there's a parallel universe out there somewhere where that didn't happen, and you're talking to somebody about the stupidest thing I ever did was make payroll <laughs> with my own money. Like, so, yes, there's yes. some universe where you're having that conversation with somebody right now.
1: Ab- absolutely. It could have gone either way. It was probably a stupid thing to do, but I am a very stubborn person, Chris. <laughs> I don't know if you know that about me. <laughs> persistent and stubborn, and those are other characteristics, you know, that uh, I think are you will find among people who have had a long-term business.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
1: yeah, so that, that was the biggest. I just was completely caught unaware, and that was what I decided to do, and uh, it was a really hard time. Uh, and then the only other just huge mistake that was that threatened the life of the company was when i bet big you know i i know from whence i speak here you know making bad bets uh i bet big on doing a game based on the tv show er mm-hmm. and there was nothing wrong with the license at all it was a very good license a little pricey but uh it it was the right license but it was to do a simulation along the lines of, you know, the Sims, mm-hmm. except in an ER. Well, oh, my God. And I had we had a million dollar budget. Well, that, of course, is nothing
2: uh,
1: for what you really need mm-hmm. for doing something really big and complicated like that. So I made so many mistakes. You know, I didn't have enough to do. I didn't have enough resource to do what it was that I wanted to do. Uh, we didn't have enough time to do it in. There was a time element to it. I didn't have the right team. And then I didn't, and then I missed the market. You know, that was the other thing. I didn't talk to enough people to vet my idea, you know, of what this game is going to be and, and when, and how we're going to sell it and how much money it's going to make. I didn't, I didn't have a mentor and I didn't talk to enough people and i got really caught and i we lost almost all of our money on that project and that for a small company when you make a giant bet like that yeah you don't you you don't get to
0: make a lot of those mistakes in a small company
1: no no so that was another mistake uh on a lot of levels and was very costly. so how did
0: how did you come back from it What, what what was the solution other than just finding some more projects and choking it down
1: well, it's a very sad story. I had to lay off just about everybody. Oh, really? I had like 45 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just had to completely cut back.
0: Yeah, I, I think people who don't run hard. businesses don't know how hard that is. Um, that's, yeah. that's you know, not to get morbid, but, you know, we, we our studio went from, you know, 90-some-odd 90, 90 people a while ago to we're about 30 right now. And that's, you know, that's 60 or 70 people that you got to look in the eyes and say, Yeah, I screwed up, and because of that, you don't have a paycheck anymore. That's a hard conversation to have.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, especially since it was really my fault, not their fault. It was my fault, and they're the ones paying the price. So, yeah, that's hard. Yeah. So on that on that
0: happy note, um, I, I have one last question to kind of get the taste of that out of our mouths. I always ask people: yes. books, websites, podcasts, blogs. What what is it if if you were to suggest to somebody who's who's listening to this, you know, this is where I get this this is where I get my my creative you know a spark. This is where I get my information. What what media out there are you consuming? that you'd like to suggest to somebody and say, wow, I get a lot out of this, and this this helps me in my creative life, whatever it is?
1: Well, uh, you know, since I try to focus uh, at this point in my career on new opportunities with new technology, so I think, you know, keeping your eye on things that are on the horizon Mm -hmm. uh, that are going to impact the industry. So, Uh, gosh, the A16Z, that's the Mark Andreessen one.
2: Okay, yeah.
1: Uh, that's a podcast. I really, I like that. And exponential wisdom is another one that's very cool about futuristic stuff. Uh, I think we were, we had an exchange on Facebook. I mean, I've been reading science fiction. This is mostly fueled by Donald Trump, I think, more than anything else. But, you know, it's really there's some really compelling, you know, science fiction out there. I just discovered Octavia Butler. And uh, she's an L.A.-based uh, writer, an African-American woman who died about 10 years ago. And uh, her Parable of the Sower is just a great book. You know, so I've been... I've been reading uh, quite a bit of science fiction again, getting back into that. Um, I would say then Venture Beat and TechCrunch. I read that mm-hmm. just again more about futuristic things, what's on the horizon. Uh, and then the uh, design. I, you know, if people really are interested in game design, I love board game design. Yes. I I love to play board games and I love to. Think about board game design because, to me, that's really distilled design, you know, without all the bells and whistles.
0: Yeah, you don't have a computer there to do all your math for you, so you have to be simple.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, and make something that's fun, and uh, you, despite the fact that it might be a little repetitious, you know. How do you do that? So there's um, Game Design Roundtable that I listen to mm. sometimes that uh, and uh, another one called On Board Games on board games, uh, that I listen to. So, uh, those are on the design side.
0: All right. Well, that's and a, they, that's a, that's a pretty serious list. Um, yeah, I, I'm yeah. now, I'm now left wondering how you have time to consume all that.
1: <laughs> in the car. I live in Los Angeles. Oh,
0: that's true. <laughs> LA people have a lot of time in cars. So I guess that makes, <laughs> I guess podcasts make a lot of sense for you guys.
1: They, they sure do.
0: All right. And that's that's about all I've got. This has been absolutely incredible. There's there's so much wonderful information in here. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and and sharing this with everybody. Um, I want to do a a shout out. Um, This this is your chance to pimp your stuff. Um, So this this is your, your opportunity to let people know where can we get what you're working on right now?
1: Uh, Well, AriellaLera.com, which is my blog, and I write there once or twice a month. uh, So you can, you know, read all about things that I'm working on there. Uh, Legacygames.com, check that site out, and uh, you can find out about some of the projects that we're working on right now. And uh, go to the Google Play Store and check out Crayola Color Blaster, which is our latest uh, AR game. That's it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris, for all your kind words. I really appreciate it.
0: So that's what we've got for you today. For those of you who hung out for a whole hour, I hope you really enjoyed that. There was so much wonderful information in there. And I know it went a little bit mm-hmm. long, but... I I couldn't cut any of that because it was all so good. So thanks again to Ariella for being on the show today. We've got more great interviews coming up. If you're into this, make sure to tell your friends, tell your family, post it on your Twitter, post it on your Facebook, all that other stuff. Go to the iTunes store, give us a bunch of stars. You know the drill. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next show.